מרגישים קיץ באוויר כבר עשרים שנה מרגישים קיץ באוויר Shalom and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamit, sitting in Highland Park, New Jersey, era of Thanksgiving. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, New York City, at the Anshay Chesed, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Shek, the Day School, Long Island, sitting somewhere in Long Island. It's great to see you guys. This is a great Parsha. This is my Bar Mitzvah Parsha, 47th anniversary of my Bar Mitzvah this week. King Yerbu. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. At Mayavestream, halfway there. Halfway there. I'm really delighted. And and I can't think of a better way to to share this milestone than to be with the two of you and to really discuss this Parsha, which is, I think, a transitional Parsha. This, first of all, is the is the gateway to the rest of Breshit. We have four Parshiot now to complete the book of Breshit, Vayeshev, Miketz, Vayigash, and Vayeche, all dealing with the story of Joseph located within the larger story of Jacob. And I want to just focus in on the first first um, pasuk, or second pasuk, which is, it says, Vayeshev Yaakov bears Migurei Aviv, Jacob dwelled in the land where his father had sojourned. Ele toldot Yaakov, this is the line of Jacob, Yosef. And so the Torah there is, it's, it's not even hitting you over the head. It's saying, hey, everybody, we're changing focus. This is a transitional moment it's a transitional moment in the narrative of israel and it's not only a transitional moment in the narrative of, of israel but we're, we're understanding that something is ending in this history and something is beginning i think so go ahead Doug. there there seems to be a kind of subversion here because the anomaly of yosef is he is one of the few oldest sons that actually becomes an important figure he is Jacob's oldest son by Rachel. Not obviously his oldest son. Uh, he has oldest sons by the three other wives and concubines. But Joseph really is kind of set apart for this reason. And it's curious, as you said, that it picks up not only that Joseph is mentioned as the offspring of Jacob, but he's only 17 years old when the story begins. Right? They pass over the, not, the 10 older sons in order to get to Joseph, who is, you know, quite obviously a youth in this Parsha. There are, there are lots of areas of transition going on here in that uh, the first three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are patriarchal. Joseph, it's not that he doesn't rate, but he's just not a patriarch. Uh, Jeremy, you want to just give some thoughts about what... What are some of the concrete differentiations in, in between him and, and, his, and his parents? And maybe we could reflect on, on dynasties. And, and is this part of just the way that a dynasty unfolds? Well, first, I just want to note that this, in addition is to being your bar mitzvah portion, is the bar mitzvah portion of my daughter, Dossi. Hey. 12 years. There you go. 12 years. She just, she just had her 25th birthday. So, Parsha Vayeshev, uh, why is Joseph not a patriarch? Well, first of all, you know, 
yes, he's the oldest son of his mother. He's the Bukhor of his mother. But, you know, in Parshat Kitetse, in Deuteronomy, it will give us a law, a really important law, that says if you have a person, man has two wives, one whom he really loves and one whom he doesn't love, one is beloved and hated. These are the exact same words for Leah and Rachel. And the hated wife has the biological firstborn child. You have to treat that child as the firstborn and not preference the, the firstborn of the wife that you would prefer. It's the exact, it's the exact story, exact, exact uh, uh, circumstances of, of Joseph. And there, Devarim says, do not treat the, the, the physical secondborn as if firstborn on strength of the, the love relationship that one has with the wife. Um, so I think that the, that the passage does treat Yosef as, as the secondborn that he is, but the, the Torah loves the story that the secondborn usurps the first by dint of talent or divine providence or something like that. And so that's that's what I think is going on with Yosef. Why is he different? I mean, I'll just say a couple of, of you know, narrative devices or plot devices that make him different. One doesn't have the revelation of God to this character the way one has to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob get a specific divine revelation. God directly speaks to them. It doesn't happen to Yosef. Yosef gets through dreams, and that makes him more like later biblical, later biblical figures. Uh, all of Am Yisrael, wherever we may be, whether we're from Dan or Issachar or Zbulun, we all go through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't all go through Yosef. In fact, you know, some significant number of us don't go through Yosef. Yosef is ultimately identified with the tribes of Ephraim and Menashe in the northern kingdom of Israel. The Bible is rife with challenges between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Some of us don't really feel like we're, I mean, in biblical Israel, some of us didn't really feel like we were Joseph people. Um, so I think that that just as a descriptor of the ethnicity of, of biblical Israel, Yosef uh, is, is not this kind of channel that we are all connected to. Maybe it's a contested, a contested thing um, in a way that the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not. So, so I think another way of saying this is that the covenant is made between God and Abraham. The covenant is also transmitted to, from God to Isaac and then God to Jacob, each of which get a promise from God saying, I'm going to give the land to your offspring. Uh, I will bless those who bless you, and and that kind of wording. So Abraham doesn't succeed in creating a people. Isaac doesn't succeed in creating a people, but Jacob does succeed in creating the critical mass of the people. So effectively, they are the offspring, and they're the ones who are being blessed. And there is no active covenanting between God and these individuals. And we will see that that they they go on to uh, establish their themselves. And they have to define for themselves how they're going to live in the land. I think that's a, it's a very, very uh, challenging problem for them. They, they know that they are living in the land. They know that the land has been given to them. Um, and now they have, to, they have to create a people. And so <clears throat> I want to draw our attention to two things. First of all, Joseph is the first one with a lot of brothers. Abraham had two brothers, but one Nebuch died when he was relatively young, Haran, and Nahor never made it into the land. So Abraham more or less flew solo. It was Isaac and Ishmael, uh, because let's face it, we also forget about the six sons of Keturah 
as well most of the time, and then Jacob and Esau. And now suddenly we have Joseph with all of his brothers. And there's this really odd locution in the Torah, he shepherded his brothers with sheep. And one would expect that it would say the reverse, that he shepherded the sheep with his brothers, but Joseph sees himself as the 11th son to be the leader of the pack. Right, and that, that becomes the central dilemma or dynamic in this relationship. It's it, it, the relationship between him, him and his brothers. Right, because we can dismiss, I just want to add here, we can dismiss one brother and say he doesn't measure up, but it's hard to dismiss 11 brothers and say that they're all bad or they're all wanting. You know, and let's face it, what's going to play itself out are the brotherly dynamics over the next few weeks. So would you say then that the, the information in the dreams it effectively does that? The information in the dreams that Joseph has, the, the 12, the, the sheaves, 11 sheaves bowing down to his sheep and the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him, this is a way that uh, he is conveying to his brothers, listen, uh, I, I am your shepherd. I am the one that is leading you. Below Achsar, and I won't want. <laughs> you okay. know, the, the, the curious thing here is that Joseph, as a youngest son of sorts, craves recognition. One would have thought a prudent person might have the dreams that he had and not told his brothers. Right. But if you have faith in God that this is a... Uh, a premonition of the future, you don't have to rub it in their face. You don't have to rub it in their face. I, I, His father has the, the seichel to just shut up. <laughs> but the, no, uh, no, I think, I think he's, he's, the shamar adavar, Aviv shamar adavar is about saying, I'm watching the situation, I'm watching how it's going to unfold. I this, think, is true, this is true too, but, but Yaakov, he gets the hint, he takes the hint, but doesn't, you know, rub rub the other children's face in it. Okay. So By the way, I just want to say one more thing about Yosef. We, you know, he's He's the master of dreams. You know, later on in the Torah, when when God sort of puts Aaron and Miriam in their place in Parshat Behalotcha, Numbers approximately eleven or whatever chapter 10, 11, 12, whatever that is. Um, oh, chapter twelve, I think you're right. Um, God says, you know, Moses is not like other prophets. Moses and I were panim el panim. The rest of the prophets, I speak to them in dreams, in enigmas, and in riddles. Chalomot, uh, Moses is unique. You guys you should understand that, that Moses' prophecy is, is really in a class by itself. Joseph is the first of these characters, as, as Elliot pointed out. You know, God speaks to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, covenant forming with them, making it clear, giving them directions. And then that kind of ends, and with the next generation of Yosef, you have somebody who, uh, in this one small respect, is maybe not, not that we get messages from, from heaven in, in our dreams or, or to credit them as messages in heaven, but in this respect, he's a little bit more like us in that there's no, you know, God calling up and saying, I want to tell you exactly what's going to happen. You have to read the hints out of dreams, and that is true about Joseph. So this, this makes him a little bit more like, the, those not those people from you know ancient to four times who had a different kind of relationship. All right, 
I want to I want to I want to offer a proposition that you can debate. I want to say the the when Jacob says to Joseph, "Lechna ure et shlom achecha vet shlom hatzon," go and see, go and 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 um, see how your brothers are doing and how the flocks are fraying, and bring me back word. Uh, I want to say that that's the most consequential statement in the entire Torah. Um, or we could say, we could use the same uh, category like Jeopardy, consequential verses in the Torah for 20. <laughs> for, what is it up to now? It's 100. It's, it's not nowhere 20, 40, 60. Okay, so, no. so <laughs> <laughs> the, the, this is, is this the dumbest thing that any father ever said to a child? <laughs> Or, or why is he sending him out? Can you can you try and understand this? I, I want to say I'm watching this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Later on, you know, late, later on, after Jacob is dead, and the brothers, fearing that Yosef is going to settle scores, says, says, you know, they say to him, "Oh, remember when God made you promise not to kill us?" And he says, "Guys." Or, you know, don't don't think that way. You thought bad and God made it come out good, right? You planned evil and God was the providential hand behind all this, making it come out good. And and yes, this is mind-blowingly foolish. You can't understand what, what Yaakov has done. He clearly is setting him up. And you know this because Yosef answers, Hineni. Jacob says, listen, I'd like to send you someplace. He says, Hineni, oh, never a good move. I'm going. Uh, and I think that the Torah, the narrative voice of the Torah is telling you, hey, pay attention to the outrageous string pulling of, of the divine behind, behind this to make it work out. So what I would add here is that, you know, Jacob is, shall we say, in polite language, kind of obtuse. And it highlights for us that, in fact, the patriarchs are not good parents. They do not have great relationships with their children. And in fact, one of the great social problems of all time is developing strong families. How does one go about it? You know, Bereshit is not, is not the kind of uh, proof that we want to bring for or a recipe for creating strong families. You know, Abraham tries to kill Isaac. Isaac and Jacob can't see eye to eye. Isaac can hardly see anything at that point. And Jacob seems to mismanage his children in and they start over, and over again. Right? And this is just the beginning. It's not the first time he'll say something that perhaps is not so intelligent. Is there something subtle going on that they go to Shechem? Is there is there something oh, that's not subtle at all? Not subtle. Go ahead. Because 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 as I noted before, Yosef will be associated with the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, who are associated with the northern tribes of Israel. Yosef is ultimately, his bones are going to be brought up from Egypt and buried in Shechem. So when he is thrown in the pit in Shechem, um, uh, or in Dotan in the, in the general area, uh, it, is a, it is a foreshadowing of the fact that he will ultimately be placed in that ground again under very, very different circumstances. So there's a foreshadowing or, a, or an omen-like thing that Yosef belongs in Shechem. But... Shechem, and I'm now I'm not commenting on the modern city of Nablus and uh, and all the problems facing uh, the, the Jewish people in its homeland nowadays in, in uh, the territories. Um, 
Shechem is a site of bad things that happen. And one of the Aremi Klat, one of the cities of refuge, is, is located in Shechem. And the rabbis in Tractate Makot say, um, you know, bad stuff always seems to happen there. It's, it's, this is a problematic place. And I think that that's also, I think the sages, when they make that midrash, are picking up on, you know, on, on the concentration of bad events that happens around here. All right, let me, let me float this, uh, this interpretation on you guys and see if you can uh, shoot it down. <laughs> Which is fun, always. With pleasure. Uh, so, so Shem was the place of a battle, the, the, the massacre. The massacre, the brothers, it's the first time that we have any uh, record of them engaged in, in, a, in, in war or in, in, a, in, a, in a skirmish. They, they are ruthless, but as, as we would know, but as people have reported to us, there's nothing that bonds uh, people as a band of brothers than being engaged in combat. You know, it's not an accident that that phrase, the band of brothers, has come into the language as brothers in arms, people that, that uh, have united in conflict. So they're going to the scene of the battle to rekindle that confraternity and make themselves into a unit. Look at, look at the family structure here. Uh, the, Rachel is dead. Reuben has tried to usurp the family leading role. Uh, these six brothers, these the the, Le the Leia brothers, plus the Bilha and Zilpa uh, brothers, uh, they've been um, you know kind of ostracized by Jacob's relationship to Joseph, and and basically you have and, and I don't know about Benjamin here. That's a big question mark. So I'm I'm assuming that Benjamin was too little to go. So I'm 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 offering that ten of these boys, the men, go up to Shechem to kind of build their their pact together and that's what jacob is dispatching him for he's saying look they're 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 organizing go see what's going on and, and by the way check out on my flock because i spent 20 years building that flock and i i wouldn't like it to to uh wither basically okay get, right get, on, on, on support of that you know um uh well, you, you go ahead, Bear. So what I would say, Elliot, is that this is not a scene of war. It's a scene of a war crime. Indeed. And, you know, if we call it war, we're giving the brothers too much credit. They took advantage of Shechem and Hamor. And I think it's hard for a modern person to find a justification for their conduct. Even if one might think they are the worst of the worst as people, to have them circumcise themselves and then wait until they're in the most pain and just kill them is is brutal. You know, it's not it's not humane. And, you know, I'm struck by the language of Jacob. He, he's looking to see if they can live peacefully. Yes. OK, so I was going to say that that maybe in support of what you said, Elliot, uh, Joshua is also going to have a covenant renewal ceremony up in this same locale. So it, it is a place up at the mountains of Har, Har Grizim and Har Eval, which are the two mountains on either side of Shechem. Um, so that, that sense that the brothers are all together, banded together, perhaps with memories of, of their quote-unquote, what they may think, what Shimon and Levi may think is the heroic deed um, to avenge Dina's, Dina's rape. Uh, they, there is a way in which going to this place and having the 10 of them together is a you know powerfully connective experience. Perhaps that's true. 
Uh, you know, before we started talking, we were, before we started recording, we were talking about some midrash about that Dina um, and, and Shechem liaison and whether or not she had a child. So just tap, tap, tapping around, uh, I did find the midrash that said that uh, Osnat Bat Potifera, the, the woman jo Joseph will marry in Egypt, is the child of Shechem and Dina. And it is... Uh, found in the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, a kind of a late midrash, chapter 38, in which it says that when she was born, the Israelites wanted to kill baby because it was a symbol of shame. And so somebody took her down to Egypt and she was a foundling where she was brought up and then ultimately, ultimately married Joseph. And then there is this other midrash, equally or perhaps even stranger, found in Breshi Rabbah, chapter 80, that said that Shimon married Dina. And that's a full sister. That's a full sister, not a half sister. This, I mean, I don't know what to do with such an outrageous midrash that imagines the avot <laughs> engaged in totally prohibited incest. That's, that's right. But the Joseph thing is with a niece, though, not a half sister, right? It's a, a niece by a half sister. Yeah, yeah. No, a niece actually, oddly enough, is a permitted relationship, right? Anyway, in halacha, but, but. Uh, the the other one is is I mean like listen uh, the the great you know important story in Second Samuel of Amnon and Tamar that that's also a brother sister thing also clearly forbidden either you have to say that at some level we're misunderstanding what the Torah's actual incest prohibitions are and these midrashim are located in uh, or or the Amnon story is, is just located in a different set of laws but or or you say something like um, you know, they just they just related the authors of such midrashim or the authors of such biblical texts. They just related to the prohibitions in a, in a somewhat different way than we do. Like they're the general prohibitions, but sometimes there's exceptions. I don't know. Well, I think the exceptions are real life. I don't know that they're necessarily sanctioned, but we have to reckon with the way people actually behave, and you cannot eliminate everything from memory just by not recording it. But, you know, you were talking about um, Dina and uh, Osnat, and if Osnat actually... Hold that thought. <laughs> Technicalities here. Not too, that is quite powerful, not just that of Joseph. Wait, repeat that. You, you were frozen for a little bit. Repeat you missed that. half of what you said. Okay, so what I said was, oh, that was so wise. No, what I said <laughs> that if Dina, if Osnat actually is the daughter of Dina, then when Menashe is named, which is reference to forgetting, that we know what Joseph is forgetting, but also then Osnat also has a story of forgetting as well, and it gives Menashe's name much more poignance than we might otherwise think. And it really, I think, drives the Midrash. Okay. That, that, is, that is beautiful and wise. That's great. Let, let, let's just, I put a coda on this, which is that the, the family system does get changed in, I mean, rather drastically, okay? Joseph is sold into slavery. Judah emerges as the family leader. Reuben looks like a dolt. And, and we could spend a lot of time you know, looking at that. And, and I do enjoy studying that passage. But I, I really want to go to the next story, which is like the, and as this was happening, or, or while, uh, you know, after these events, um, Judah 
Judah sets up his own family. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. He has three children, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Er dies. He is wicked in the sight of the Lord. Onan, Er is married to a woman named Tamar. He marries a woman named Tamar as childless. The Leverite system ordains that uh, the brother of the deceased uh, husband should maintain the seed of his deceased brother to maintain the name. He is supposed to marry Tamar, and um, he is given to Tamar, but he doesn't, let's say, consummate the marriage properly. He doesn't fulfill his commitment. Indeed, Onan, and he dies. So having lost two children already, Er and Onan, Jacob is somewhat hesitant in presenting Shelah, the youngest, to Tamar. Uh, and uh, Tamar is really upset with Jacob for doing this. Judah, Jacob, Judah. Judah, Judah for doing it. Judah's wife dies, and Judah is a mourner. And that's where Tamar uh, takes matters into her own hands. Jeremy, you want to pick up the story there? Sure. I, I wonder, by the way, about the, about the fact that Judah's wife died. Now he's a widower. Yes. And so does this change what, uh, does this change the, the character of his actions? Does it maybe bring a little emotional dimension to his actions? But what has happened is that Tamar, because, you know, in, in biblical society, um, women were, it just seemed natural to people that women were relatively economically powerless. They needed to be attached to, to male households. Um, so she really wants to be given. It's, we don't we don't know that she's probably ten to fifteen years older than poor Shayla, but uh, it's not like they had a a, a a a love match in their hearts and minds. She wants her to have this relationship so she can have this child, so she can inherit a part of the estate, so she can be economically stable and secure, uh, totally reasonable. And and the fact that Judah will not do that to her means that she is consigned to a life of poverty and loneliness. She's got no. She's got no children. She's got no husband. She's got no prospects. She is still bound to the Judah family, but he won't give her a male um, to to have a child with. So she's off in her own house as a social pariah. Okay, so she takes matters very, very much into her own hands, and she does something unbelievably audacious, unbelievably bold, unbelievably you know risky. It's one of those things like if this were on TV, you know, you would say you know with a smile. What could possibly go wrong? Everything could possibly go wrong with this, and nearly does. She dresses up in a, a prostitute's garb, but our listeners shouldn't be thinking a prostitute that one might find on 8th Avenue in New York City who, whose garb is... Uh, Garbless. Like, huh? Garbless. Garbless, uh, particularly revealing. Um, uh, no, she's dressing in some sort of veil, but she goes to a place, a crossroads, where a woman alone could be presumed to be a prostitute. And she, she sort of uh, rendezvous with Judah there. And he does, in fact, uh, employ the oldest profession. He does, in fact, have sex with her and promises to pay her at a later date with a couple of animals um, to build her own flock, so to speak. And she takes a collateral. She takes a, a bit of his uh, belt and, and signet which like in, in ancient times was his ID. She took his ID. Your court and your signet and your staff. This is your visa, your driver's license, and, and your insurance. And your ATM card, yeah. Exactly. And, and, uh, so, so she takes all of his stuff 
And then she goes away. And when he does try, he does like he does kind of do the right thing. He does try to pay the debt. But when he goes back to the crossroads, ain't, ain't prostitute. There's no, there's no, there's no other. The prostitute never was here. So he's like, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's stuck. And when a couple of months later, he hears that his daughter-in-law, the social pariah, back stuck in her in her in her you know family house wearing her widow's garment. Well, now she's pregnant. Uh-oh. How did that happen? So he gets very righteous and he says she has to be executed. She has to, in fact, be executed by burning for being an adulteress. Yes. Uh, then she's she's like cool as a cucumber. She says, okay, well, you know, let me tell you who this is by. Uh, sir, do you recognize this cord and staff and, and, uh, and signet ring? And Judah now, she, she doesn't say, by the way, she doesn't get out there and say, you know, like Natan the prophet will say to David, she doesn't say, you're the man. She very subtly and with a good deal of faith and cool as a cucumber says, do you recognize whose these are? And he says, Sadka Mimeni. She's more, she, which either means she is more righteous than I am or she's righteous, it's me. It's fascinating that the, the, the tribe of Judah is propelled by this union and that from this union, you get Zerach and Peretz who end up becoming the ancestors of the Davidic kingdom. Uh, and, and so, so here you have, like we, we talked a few weeks ago with a, with a, you know, kind of a smile about the dirty joke of, of Moab and Ammon, that Lot's daughters seduce him and, and he has these rival people, Moab and Ammon come from those acts of incest. And it, it's like the Bible's dirty joke to say, you know who Moab and Ammon are? I'll tell you what those rotten, rotten origin people are. And yet in this one, there's also some aspect of a dirty joke, because this is also an incest prohibition. It's an adultery prohibition, an incest prohibition. He's sleeping with his, his daughter-in-law. But the offspring are exactly, as you said, Elliot, messianic. They're like, great. Um, it, it, the violation of the rule in this case produced, uh, you know, a redemptive birth. Strange. Okay. Then we have, back to our story, the Yosefurad Mitzrayma. Joseph is taken down to Egypt. Just in the remaining minutes, just let's focus on, on this collision of cultures. You have the Hebrew Joseph in the Egyptian household, of Potiphar, delivered to the Egyptian by Ishmaelites, Midianites. It's a real confluence of all these cultures. And then we have another, another very interesting woman in this Parsha, Mrs. Potiphar, doesn't have a name. Um, do we have any sympathy for her or, or what, what is, how, does, how do we relate to her? How should we relate to well, her? Why don't, why don't you take a stab at that one? What I want to say is that that she 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 tries very very hard to seduce Joseph, and Joseph at least it seems resists her uh, approaches to him. Um, there is this the the final scene where where there's nobody around, um, and uh, she says shichvai me sleep with me, and he says well it doesn't really say no, it says as follows. Um, she grabs him by the clothing and he leaves his clothing with her. So that creates a certain kind of ambiguity. So 
perhaps he does, perhaps he doesn't want to. In the end, of course, he doesn't. But he goes out and he's got no clothing on. She is left holding the clothes. And as we know in the whole set of stories, clothing is a very, very important motif. These clothes are not sullied, they're not torn, but she's holding on and she's filled with rage against him. And she says, look at this Hebrew, Hebrew man you brought, Hebrew slave that you brought to us. You brought this guy, this Hebrew slave to uh, dally with me. And then um, Potiphar doesn't know what to do. Well, he knows what to do, at least in the play, he knows what to do. He says, get in jail, right? Right, well, which is curious because what he should say is execute this man. Right. So the fact that he only sends him to prison suggests that he understands who his wife is. And I think that the setup for this is in the curious feature of the Judah and Tamar story. When Judah goes down to the the sheep, uh, the sheep shearing, it says he sees someone dressed as a prostitute. When he goes to pay off his pledge, he says, where is the sacred prostitute? Right? He dresses up his action to make it sound better than it seemed to be when he was engaged in it. And that's how I think we're supposed to see Mrs. Potiphar, that she too also dresses up her actions, as it were, to make them seem better than they actually were. But her husband sees through her. Her husband sees through her, and he's in a he's in a difficult place because he knows that if he doesn't believe her, then it's over for him. But and 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 yet he needs to preserve Joseph because he knows that Joseph is prodigiously talented. So he says, "I'm not guilty of this particular crime." I'm not guilty. There's, there's a there's an element here. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I sort of hesitate to say this because. Uh, you know, especially in, in the last years, we've of course been very sensitized to the different ways in which sexual violence can can be foisted upon people. Uh, some with with you know a, a punch in the face, or some with with threatening words, and and you don't want to say things like you know, uh, well, did she scream? Um, but the Mrs. Potiphar, who is claiming rape, so when when she, her seduction has failed and she's grabbed Joseph's garment. Um, and she's now holding the garment, which was, truthfully, she was the actor in this. This is what we know as the readers, that she was the actor. But when she's now holding the garment, now she's in trouble, because why in the world is she holding the garment? So she's got to take some expl- explanation for that. And her explanation is, and she repeatedly says this over and over again, I think she says it three times in the course of the story, I called very loudly, and he ran away. Yeah, I'm thinking that the tone is something like, you guys heard me call really loudly, right? Didn't you, didn't you hear me call really loudly? You know, when you heard me scream and then you saw him run away, right? You, you guys all saw that. Yeah, but, yeah. but of course, that's not how it was. Um, by the way, I just want to play one little, one little note of Hebrew wordplay, which is beged is, 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 is clothing. It's also bogeid is betrayal. Is betrayal. So she grabs him bivigdo. She grabs him in his betrayal or in his clothing. I, I agree with you, Elliot. I think that, and the Midrash, which, which frankly, the Midrash is extremely explicit about this in ways that one doesn't necessarily tell the, the show. Broadcast like ours. <laughs> yeah. Um, is, is that 
Joseph uh, uh, didn't exactly say no there. So she she grabs him in his in his betrayal is is a like very sharp pointed Hebrew barb in the course of this. Wow, we're at the end of our our time together, but we just we're going to be with Joseph in jail, and he has these he interprets the dream of the cupbearer and the baker, and. Um, he successfully interprets the dream of the cupbearer and also the baker. It doesn't end well for the baker, but the the cupbearer gets to go back to his post, and the parsha ends with these words: "Velo zachar sar hamashkimet Yosef vayishkachayu." And the chief cupbearer did not think of Joseph. He did not remember him. He forgot him. He put him out of his mind. Wow, and we're left with Joseph in jail, and and. These parshiot end with us wanting to already see what happens. But you'll have to wait till next week on another edition of Parsha Talk. We want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for sharing time. We hope everyone had a beautiful or has a beautiful Thanksgiving. Hanukkah is coming up Sunday, Sunday night. We hope you have a beautiful Hanukkah. We'll join you next week on another edition of Parsha Talk. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy birthday, Elliot. There you go. Kites Bavir. 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 Kites Bavir